This is Greg Oliar, the author of Dirty Rubles, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote, Volume 2. I'm your host, Allison Gill, formerly AG. We have a lot of news today, but first, I wanted to thank our patrons who get these episodes ad-free and early, along with ad-free Daily Beans episodes that come out every weekday morning, and all our bonus content and happy hour Zoom calls and all that stuff. You can become a patron of all those shows for one subscription. Just head to patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote and sign up. Today, we're going to be talking about Jill Stein lending herself $10, which is weird. This draws questions from the FEC. We have a Department of Justice under Trump subpoenaing Don McGahn. There's new evidence showing right-wing groups posed as left-wing activists on social media to divide Democrats. Uh, We have an update from the special master in the Rudy case and a military expert who believes Putin will eventually leak what they had on Trump. Plus, we have some schadenfreude and, of course, the Fantasy Indictment League. But let's kick it off with just the facts. All right. The top story this week is an extension of what I reported last week from The New York Times that Trump's Department of Justice had subpoenaed metadata from Apple and Microsoft for at least a dozen people associated with the House Intelligence Committee, including Swalls, Biggie Swalls, Swalwell and Schiff and their families, including a minor and their staff. Since that story broke, we've learned that Don McGahn was also notified in May that his metadata was subpoenaed by Maine Justice under Sessions and that a gag order much like the gag orders for CNN, The Times and The Washington Post and Schiff and Swalwell were renewed under Barr's Department of Justice. Uh, Now, of course, this is metadata. We've talked about that. We don't know exactly what the ins and outs are of this so far. But uh, it's interesting, though, that right around the time McGahn agreed to testify to the House Judiciary Dems, uh, that uh, he he was notified (laughs) that his metadata was subpoenaed. Now, from the New York Times, quote, it is not clear what FBI agents were investigating, whether Mr. McGahn was their specific focus or whether he was swept up in a larger net because he had communicated with someone who was under scrutiny. As the top lawyer for the 2016 Trump campaign and then White House counsel, Mr. McGahn was in contact with numerous people who may have drawn attention, either as part of the Russia investigations or a later leak inquiry. Still, the disclosure that agents had collected data on a sitting White House counsel, which was kept secret for years, is extraordinary. Yeah, extraordinary indeed from the administration that wrongfully accused the Obama administration of spying on his campaign. Of course, the main difference between the Russia investigation and the Barr Sessions subpoenas is something called criminal predication, at least so far that we know. The Department of Justice Inspector General Horowitz investigated the Russia probe, the oranges of the Russia probe, and determined there was sufficient criminal predication to open the investigation into Trump campaign's ties to Russia. 
And now Lisa Monaco at the Department of Justice has officially tasked the same inspector general, that's Horowitz, with investigating the oranges of the Barr Sessions probe into Democratic members of the House Intelligence Committee to determine if they had requisite criminal predication. He'll also be looking into the, the subpoenas of reporters' information and also whether or not these were politically motivated. Horowitz previously found the Russia probe and Carter Page FISA warrants were not politically motivated, but the Senate and House Judiciary Dems are not keen to wait months for the Inspector General's findings and have launched investigations into the issue of their own. From The Hill, quote, The Senate Judiciary Committee kicked off its investigation into subpoenas initiated under the Trump administration, asking the Department of Justice to turn over reams of documents as well as the justification for targeting two House Democrats. In a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland Monday, Lawmakers asked the Department of Justice to name names by listing the officials responsible for initiating the subpoenas of House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff and Rep. Eric Swalwell. Quote, these actions by former President Trump and Attorney General Barr raise additional concerns that the Department of Justice's investigative decisions in this case were motivated by improper political considerations. This letter that they wrote also asked the department to preserve all relevant materials, noting that several officials who reportedly oversaw these egregious overreaches remain at the Department of Justice, including the hand-picked prosecutor that Attorney General Barr assigned to the case in February of 2020. The request comes as the Department of Justice is scrambling to contain the fallout following the news that under the Trump Department or under the Trump administration, the department seized the records not only of lawmakers, but also reports from three news outlets and former White House counsel Don McGahn. The, uh, the initial inquiry from the Senate Judiciary focuses squarely on the lawmakers asking the department to explain, quote, factual and legal predicate for targeting the two members, along with their other staff and family members, as well as the process for obtaining the subpoenas. It asks the Department of Justice to disclose if it sought the records of any other lawmakers. We will see how Merrick Garland responds to this request from Senate Judiciary, all 11 Dems. Also in the news with regards to the Senate Judiciary, from Greg Sargent at The Washington Post, quote, President Joe Biden's Justice Department is in an undeniably difficult position, given the epic corruption of the department by his predecessor, Donald Trump. Uh, maximal transparency and accountability are now imperative. But this will inevitably clash with the department's understandable desire to cling to certain institutional prerogatives. Senate Democrats have a key role to play in pushing the department toward transparency and accountability, and they are doing so prompted by the department's highly questionable refusal to release the full memo that purportedly justified Barr's decision not to charge Trump with criminal obstruction of justice in the Russia scandal. All 11 Democrats on the Senate Judiciary fired off a letter to Merrick Garland calling on him to release this memo in full with no redactions, led by Dick Durbin. The committee chair, they argue, that precedence and transparency require it. That's why we're here, to ramp up public interest and to pressure Garland to do the right thing. I'm still not giving up on him prosecuting Trump's obstruction of justice charges. That's essential to set the precedent that a president cannot obstruct justice and get away with it. And despite how conservative Mueller was, that's what he intended. I can't imagine Garland would ignore that in the interest of uh, moving forward, as it were. We will see. I'd like to encourage everyone to withhold judgment until he actually makes a decision on whether or not to charge Trump and to continue to be loud about wanting him to. If we push our senators and representatives, they will push the Department of Justice. We'll be right back with more headlines from the week. Stay with us. 
Hey everybody, it's AG. What if you could swap your after-workout protein shake with a cereal you used to eat as a kid? Remember sitting down in front of Sesame Street in the morning with a big bowl of cereal and then drinking the delicious milk after? Most of us have had to give up our favorite cereals because of all the sugar and carbs and chemicals, but not anymore, thanks to Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon cereals have somehow formulated delicious cereals with zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, four net grams of carbs in each serving and only 140 calories per serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And you can grab a variety four-pack with all those memory-inducing flavors you love, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. Magic Spoon is how I get my protein in after a workout now, or I enjoy it dry as a healthy snack. I cannot recommend it highly enough, so go to magicspoon.com MSW to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code MSW at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their amazing product, it is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, you will. Uh, but if you don't, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com MSW and use the code MSW to save $5 off. And thank you so much, Magic Spoon, for being amazing and for sponsoring the episode. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to discuss Garland and the Department of Justice, which we were talking about in the first segment there. And uh, I, I want to do this using an op-ed from our friend Joyce Vance in the Washington Post this week called Garland Inherited a Booby-Trapped DOJ. Here's why it won't be easy to fix. Most of you know Joyce Vance is a former U.S. attorney and uh, now a law professor at the University of Alabama School of Law. She opens her op-ed by explaining that Garland had to know he was stepping into a job where he'd find several ticking time bombs, but probably didn't expect what we had discussed in the lead story earlier today with regards to the former DOJ subpoenaing House intelligence members, staff, family members, and the press in their wide-ranging leak investigation. She says, quote, that's a shocking departure from the respect for the separation of powers that prevented even Nixon with his list of enemies from investigating members of Congress. We don't know the story behind the subpoenas, who ordered them, or whether the White House was involved. It's possible that this was incidental, an incidental collection in the course of a properly predicated leak investigation, but there's an awful lot of coincidence. The subpoenas just happened to home in on two opponents of Trump, Reps Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, and these or others also retrieved information about Jim Comey, the FBI director Trump fired, and Trump's own White House counsel, Don McGahn, rumored around that time to have been cooperating with the Mueller investigation. It's also odd that a prosecutor from New Jersey without much experience in leak investigations was brought in by Barr in 2020 to resuscitate the probe, which hadn't produced enough evidence to charge a crime in three years since it began under Barr's predecessor, Jeff Sessions. Now, uh, that New Jersey prosecutor has been identified as Osmar Benvenuto. Josh Gerstein at Politico wrote, quote, friends and allies of a federal prosecutor tapped last year to dig into a series of leaked cases are pushing back against perceptions that he was a pro-Trump crony brought in to pin leaks on Democratic members of Congress. Associates of Osmar Benvenuto, who's 39, had misgivings about taking the assignment because he feared he might be seen as tarnished by the work given the perceived politicization of the Justice Department under Barr. But the New Jersey-based career prosecutor ultimately decided to accept the job after friends counseled him to do so. Several of Benvenuto's friends and mentors said they found it utterly implausible that he would have taken on a political mission for the Trump administration. For one thing, he's registered to vote in New Jersey as a Democrat, 
and previously registered as a Democrat in New York City. Paul Fishman, the Obama-appointed U.S. attorney who hired Benvenuto back in 2012, said he was startled by language in a New York Times story Thursday that suggested Benvenuto, better known as Oz, was part of a small circle of trusted aides around Barr. Former U.S. attorney, his name is uh, Craig Carpenito, confirmed that he offered Benvenuto to Barr after Barr reached out seeking a seasoned prosecutor to handle unspecified cases at headquarters that had been lingering without resolution. Quote, the attorney general told me he wanted someone who was an experienced prosecutor and wasn't afraid to make decisions. What he wanted to know was whether or not there was anything to these investigations, whether they should be closed or brought forward. Carpenito said in an interview, he said, I told him Oz Benvenuto was someone I trusted to give him an honest answer and that he had the experience to separate the wheat from the chaff. I also told him uh, Oz had the intestinal fortitude to give him a real answer. He would say yes or no. Well, I guess he said no. (laughs) Given his background, I can't imagine him refusing to testify to Congress about this either, especially if it's behind closed doors. I don't know if the DOJ will let him. Curious as to why Barr chose him, unless his plan all along was to extend the gag orders until he could ghost the DOJ, get himself out of impeachability, and then pull the pin on Oz like a grenade to go off on Trump after he was gone. I don't know. It's interesting, though. Now, back to Joyce Vance's op-ed. She says, with respect to Garland cleaning up the DOJ, the problem cases don't identify themselves. Files don't come with bright yellow stickers that say warning or danger. It will take a top-to-bottom review of the Justice Department to root them out. And it has to happen fast. But then Joyce reminds us of the scope of this task. She says, the sheer scope of that review will be daunting. The Justice Department has an enormous docket of pending investigations and cases. In 2020, U.S. attorneys' offices alone indicted more than 57,000 criminal cases and handled 92,860 civil matters. That doesn't include the work in the Justice Department's seven Washington-based litigation divisions, criminal, civil, national security, civil rights, antitrust, tax, and the environment and natural resources. There are lawyers in other components of the department as well, such as the Pardon Attorney's Office, the Office of Professional Responsibility, and the Bureau of Prisons. And there are lawyers in the departments for law enforcement agencies, the FBI, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and the U.S. Marshal Service, while agents work on matters that have yet to be referred to a prosecutor. To complicate things, investigations can be international in scope. It's an enormous portfolio, Joyce says, for a new attorney general to take control of, especially without his full team in place. The Senate Judiciary Committee hearing for the head of Garland's criminal division was only held last month. There isn't a single Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney nominated by Biden in any of the 94 offices across the country. The inspector general's investigation is an important step toward understanding whether and how the Justice Department was twisted into a weapon for use against Americans, whom the former president viewed as his enemies. But IG probes take time, and this department doesn't have a lot of it. The longer questions and concerns go unaddressed, the more difficult the department's mission becomes. It's not just the most recent uh, disclosure. Everything awful is additive. And uh, Americans' reservoir of trust for the Justice Department is running low. The process of replenishing it can't be shunted aside with the new team uh, while the new team assesses the damage. This is a moment for rebuilding the airplane while you're flying it. So how does Garland do it? She says one critical step 
is for Garland to commit to transparency. He can't depart from the Justice Department's culture of reserve, a culture that avoids much in the way of public explanation. The department can't publicize the details of investigations in progress because they could compromise them, endanger witnesses, or smear the reputations of people who are never charged. A disclosure of grand jury proceedings is prohibited by law. But the department can be transparent about the way it works and its decision-making processes. It can openly discuss why it takes certain legal positions, especially when institutional interests are at stake. It can make sure the country learns about any additional problems the department uncovers and how it's fixing them from the attorney general himself, not from investigative reporters. And Garland can be candid about what information he may not share and why. Justice seeks and needs a trusted voice that can explain complicated issues and share even bad news with openness and honesty. And Garland could take on that role. Many Americans have emerged from the Trump presidency with new interest in how our government and legal system work. That's so true. Garland can further the understanding of the rule of law. He can explain why positions he advocates for are in the country's best interests instead of allowing them to be written off as institutionalism and letting that become a dirty word. Not everyone will agree all the time, but people who are trusted with the truth will better understand the complicated web of nuance and consequences that surrounds legal decision-making. That's kind of what I try to do here at Mueller, she wrote, and on the beans. And I do recommend you read her entire piece in the Washington Post. Uh, We'll be right back with more headlines than we have the Fantasy Indictment League action, so stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this episode is brought to you by Rise Sleep. You know how much I love sleeping. Sleeping and reading the news are my favorite things. But so many of us are carrying around sleep debt. Sleep is a necessary thing. It's as necessary as air, food, and water... But there are a lot of myths and misunderstandings about it. Did you know it's normal to feel groggy in the morning and sluggish in the afternoon? But it's not normal to feel tired all day. That's an indication that you're carrying sleep debt. And that limits your natural energy peaks and it makes your dips less productive. Rise uses a scientific fact-based approach to help you get the sleep your body needs. It's built around two principles that sleep researchers agree most affect how we feel and perform. Sleep debt and circadian rhythm. Sleep debt is the only sleep score that matters. Rise tracks how much sleep you owe your body relative to your own unique sleep needs, and it helps you pay it back. And your circadian rhythm dictates your personal energy peaks and dips throughout the day. Rise not only predicts your daily energy schedule, it helps you control it. Rise works by pulling historical data from your phone and apps and wearables to tell you your sleep needs, uh, track your sleep debt, and determine the best time for you to go to sleep. Every morning, Rise tells you how long you can expect to be groggy, when your best focus times will be, and when you should start winding down. I've been using Rise for a couple weeks now. I've been able to pay down my sleep debt and actually manage those energy peaks and dips during the day. It's really amazing how it's able to track and predict my energy levels based on my sleep history. Rise helps you realize your potential with real results, real productivity, and real performance, and real well-being. 80% of Rise users feel the benefits within five days. So give it a try and see what it can do for you. Go to risescience.com MSW, download the Rise app today, and try it free for seven days. Whether you want to become a morning person, wake up more refreshed, be less exhausted during the day, or improve your productivity and daily energy, Rise is the power behind your next best day. That's risescience.com slash MSW to try the Rise app free for seven days. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I have a few more interesting headlines for you from the week. First of all, I wanted to discuss a little bit about the special master, right? This is uh, Barbara Jones. She was appointed to go through the Rudy files after he was raided in April. She is the same special master, as I've told you, who was appointed to go through the Cohen files after he was raided in April of 2018. Well, she put in a report 
uh, this week, and it says, by order of appointment, uh, the court appointed Barbara Jones, special master, to render decisions regarding privilege issues relating to the material seized in the execution of search warrants dated April 21st, 2021, and April 28th, 2021, and executed April 28th, 2021. Uh, This report is submitted to provide the court with a scheduling plan setting forth the procedure and timeline for conducting the privilege review of the seized materials and resolving any disputes to privilege. Special master has conferred with the parties regarding the status of production of the materials. Uh, The government is currently processing the seized materials. The government will provide electronic copies of the materials to counsel for Mr. Giuliani and Ms. Tonzig in an expedited and rolling basis. This is pretty much word for word, the Cohen one. (laughs) The procedures for review as follows. As the materials become available, special master would designate batches of documents in the order they will be reviewed for each batch uh, counsel for Mr. Giuliani and Ms. Tonzing will conduct a privilege review and submit privilege designations to the special master. These designations shall identify potentially privileged documents, et cetera, et cetera, attorney-client relationships. In addition, counsel for Mr. Giuliani and Ms. Tonzing may submit designations for highly personal information, medical records, and shit like that. Uh, she doesn't say that. I said shit like that. It's understood by all parties. However, the special master will not conduct a review of all materials for responsiveness after all privileged or highly personal designations are made by counsel for Mr. Giuliani and Tonzing in a batch. The remaining non-designated documents and materials will be released to the government. The designation submissions from counsel to Mr. from Mr. Giuliani and Ms. Tonzing and any subsequent conferences regarding those submissions uh, will be ex parte. Should the special master require additional facts or background information to assist her in making her privileged determinations, she will also and might confer with the government and receive submissions from the government or an ex par- on an ex parte basis. The special master will not provide designated documents or materials to the government. Once the special master is considered the privileged positions, uh, she will render decisions on the materials and submit the report and the recommendation to the, to the court. Special master's final privilege determination will include privileged materials, partially privileged materials, non-privileged materials, or highly personal materials. Those are the four categories. Uh, The special master will provide the court with a timeline for concluding the privilege review once she better understands the volume of material to be reviewed. (laughs) The government has provided special master with a copy of search warrants executed in the matter and underlying application materials for those warrants. Pursuant to Section 10 of the order, the special master has conferred with parties regarding her compensation and expenses. The government will be be responsible for the payment of special master's compensation and expenses of the review process in the manner described above. Special master has discussed the relevant hourly rates with the government, and the special master intends to submit invoices for the court's review and approval on a monthly basis. Signed, the Honorable Barbara Jones. So that's the update. No real timeline yet. She wants to get an idea of... (laughs) The volume of the documents. I think once we see her next report, we might have a clearer picture of how long this could take. We can compare it to Cohen's volume of documents. And if it's about the same, we can imagine it would take about the same amount of time. We could just do a little, you know, back of the envelope math there. Uh, also today, from The Guardian, Beans Come True. Oh, a digital marketing firm closely linked to the pro-Trump youth group Turning Point USA was responsible for a series of deceptive Facebook ads promoting Green Party candidates during the 2018 midterm elections. Uh, In an apparent attempt to split the Democratic vote in a number of close races, the ads purported to come from an organization called America Progress Now, APN, and used socialist memes and rhetoric to urge left-wing voters to support Green Party candidates. Facebook was aware of the true identity of the advertiser, the conservative marketing firm Rally Forge, and the deceptive nature of the ads. Facebook was aware. This is according to documents seen by The Guardian. But the company determined that they didn't violate any of its policies. 
So I can't post pictures of my butt, but you can post fake things posing as opposite parties and straw candidates to divide elections. Okay, sounds good. Rally Forge would go on to set up a pro-Trump domestic troll farm for Turning Point Action, a sister organization of Turning Point USA in 2020. That earned a permanent ban from Facebook. Quote, there were no policies at Facebook against pretending to be a group that didn't exist. (laughs) An abuse vector that has also been used by the governments of Honduras and Azerbaijan. That's Sophie Zhang, former Facebook employee and whistleblower, who played a small role in the investigation of the Green Party ads. She added, the fact that Rally Forge later went on to conduct coordinated inauthentic behavior with troll farms reminiscent of Russia should be taken as an indication that Facebook's leniency led to more risk-taking behavior. The revelation that the ads were linked to the right-wing organization raises questions about the Federal Election Commission's enforcement of campaign finance laws. APN and its ads appeared to violate federal laws that require independent expenditures to be filed with the FEC and include proper disclosures on advertisements. And oh, looky here. On 27 October 2018, just days before the November 6th election, APN, American Progress, now began running a series of ads that used leftist motives, such as the red rose emoji and images of Bernie Sanders and AOC, to rail against the, quote, corporate two-party oligarchy and the, quote, corporate capitalist wage system. Some of the ads urged voters to choose a third party, but others endorsed Green Party candidates by name, triggering FEC rules for independent expenditures. Hmm. Hmm. God, how many times did I get dragged on social media for pointing that out? And speaking of Green Party candidates, this is weird. Jill Stein floated her campaign $10 on March 30th, according to the FEC. It's unclear why Stein's 2016 primary campaign needed such a small amount of money, especially since it ended the quarter with $7,100 on hand. A look at Stein's social media profiles around the date of the loan provide no clues about the disbursement, and her campaign didn't report any expenditures. On March 30th, neither Stein nor her campaign responded to requests for comment. Quote, I've never seen another campaign committee report a loan from a candidate for such a small amount. That's Brett Kappel, an attorney specializing in campaign finance at Harmon, Karan, Spielberg and Eisenberg. There are other oddities about her $10 loan. The FEC filing says the interest free unsecured loan is due January 1st in the year 1900. Hmm. Koppel says the incorrect maturity date may trigger a request for more information from the FEC. Yeah, I would. You know, I know it's only $10, but what the fuck is going on? (laughs) And now from Raw Story this week, during President Joe Biden's trip to Europe, it has been obvious how greatly he differs from former President Donald Trump in terms of foreign policy. While Trump was favorable to Putin and openly hostile toward the United States, longtime NATO allies, Biden has stressed how much he values the United States relationship with NATO and has been a much more critical president of Putin. Uh, this is uh, according to General Barry McCaffrey, a military analyst for MSNBC. And he was discussing Biden's meeting with Putin during a Wednesday, June 16th appearance on the 11th hour. He stressed what a great contrast it was to the Trump era. Uh, McCaffrey told Brian Williams, I think without question, the President Biden and his senior team were right to engage with the Russians and meet with Putin. There's no question we have to have an ongoing dialogue with Putin. The retired general went on to say he believes Biden is dealing with Putin from a position of strength. McCaffrey explained, quote, Putin heads a state uh, that is hostile to American interest. 
Uh, they've interfered with our election. They're using hackers, surrogate hackers, to attack our economic system. So I think Mr. Biden will do just fine to show up, engage him, leave a marker on the table. But then we must take action, or this daring, clever kleptocrat Putin will not change his behavior. The MSNBC military analyst said of Putin, what he does have going for him is a daring and lack of respect for the law. I look at this with almost amazement at how far he got with Trump. Eventually, the Russians will leak what they had to control Mr. Trump with his anti-American activities. As those days are over, Biden and his team are in charge. We do not need military operations against the Russians, but we do need to directly confront them on cyber hacking and interference with our election. I'll read that little part again. Eventually, the Russians will leak what they had to control Mr. Trump with his anti-American activities. So put on your poncho. We might get that P-tape yet. Everybody, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Allison. And I talked in the last segment about how much I love sleep. And I want to tell you about what makes my good night's sleep possible. I used to toss and turn. I would wake up with night sweats. I could never get back to sleep once I woke up. And I thought this was because of the stress and anxiety from covering the news. As it turns out, my mattress was the culprit. The mattress I was sleeping on was not made for me. Enter Helix Sleep. Helix knows we all have different sleep preferences, and they've created an online sleep quiz to assess your needs and match you with the perfect mattress for you. I've had my Helix now for over a year. It's the best mattress I've ever owned, and I've owned all the top brands. Uh, That's how I I take sleep very seriously. I took their sleep quiz. I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I'm a side sleeper and I like a medium firm bed, and I have never slept better. They have soft, medium, firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for our beautiful plus-size sleepers. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Just go to helixsleep.com MSW, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 sleeps risk-free, and they'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will love it. Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. And Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners at helixsleep.com MSW. That's Helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com MSW for up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Welcome back, everybody. Time for a little schadenfreude. Schadenfreude! YouTube has suspended the account of Senator Russia Ron Johnson for seven days for promoting misinformation about coronavirus treatments. Johnson promoted the use of two drugs for treating COVID-19, good old hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, ivermectin, which the National Institute of Health has found provide no benefit in the treatment of the respiratory infection. YouTube has specifically banned promotion of these drugs for treatment of COVID-19. Johnson's video is available on C-SPAN. Johnson said in a statement, big tech and mainstream media believe they're smarter than medical doctors who have devoted their lives to science and use their skills to save lives. They have decided there's only one medical viewpoint allowed, and that's the viewpoint dictated by government agencies. So uh, Rush Ron Johnson banned from YouTube for spreading COVID disinformation. You know, it all makes sense. When you frame Rush Ron as doing Putin's bidding. It makes sense that he wants more Americans to die of coronavirus. It really does. All right, time for the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, it's going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! 
All right, if you had founding member of the Fuji's Pras Michelle on your fantasy indictment draft for superseding indictment, give yourself a point. If you had Jolo down for a superseding indictment in the 1MDB case, you also get a point. This case was probably one of my most famous murder board cases that we covered during the, the uh, initial Muller She Wrote podcast. Uh, fair warning, this goes fast, and there's a lot of players, a lot of strings, a lot of yarn. Allow me to read to you from a Muller She Wrote Twitter thread going all the way back to November 1st, 2018. In episode 44, we told you about Jolo and how the Department of Justice was investigating the Malaysian financier for laundering tens of millions through two associates. He was indicted today, and naturally, he's got ties to Trump. Let's read on. As it turns out, Jolo has used embezzled and laundered funds to pay for some lawyers stateside, including Chris Christie, who repped him in a California asset forfeiture case, and Mark Kazowitz, who reps him in the Justice Department matters. But wait, there's more. We all know who Chris Christie is. as a piece of shit that stole millions from New Jersey pensioners to fund AMI and David Pecker, which covered up Trump affairs. But Kazowitz is the a-hole Kamala Harris kept asking Kavanaugh if he spoke to about Bob Mueller. But wait, there's more. Joe Lowe is also repped by Bobby Birchfield, who has served as an ethics advisor to the Trump administration, clearly a terrible person, and a GOP consultant named Ed Rogers, who consults Joe Lowe. But wait, there's still more. Elliot fucking Broidy also consults this guy and met him through, get this, Pras Michelle. Yes, founding member of the Fugees. Don't forget the Department of Justice is investigating Broidy for selling Trump access to Malaysia and China. But wait, there's more. Jolo is also close to the Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak, who was reported uh, for being arrested in Kuala Lumpur for money laundering through the same fund as Jolo. Remember when Mado said we got a yacht in asset forfeiture cases? That was Razak's boat. There's still more. Don't forget Kazowitz also helped Kushner get loans from Deutsche Bank and probably played a key role in firing Preet Bharara, who is a national treasure. It's that Trump lawyer that repped Jolo. Well, Jolo was indicted today. So if you had Jolo on your fantasy indictment team this week, congrats. This is one of those seemingly obscure indictments, but if you're an MSW listener, you know about Jolo and his Trump ties. Who knows, Matto? Maybe we'll get another yacht. Okay, so all that was back in 2018. Now, this is me right now in 2021. Uh, Jolo was initially indicted back in 2018, as you heard in that thread, and Pras Michelle was initially indicted back in 2019. And now, District of Columbia Grand Jury has returned a superseding indictment charging Jolo and Pras Michelle with orchestrating an unregistered back-channel campaign starting in 2017 to influence the former Trump administration and the Justice Department to drop the investigation of Jolo and others in connection with the 1MDB and to return a Chinese dissident back to China. Jolo and Pras Michelle conspired with Elliot Broidy, Nikki Loom Davis, and others to conduct an unregistered lobbying campaign under the direction of Jolo and Vice Minister of Public Security People's Republic of China to have the 1MDB embezzlement investigation and forfeiture proceedings involving Jolo and others closed and to have a Chinese dissident sent back to China. Michelle and Lo are also charged with money laundering conspiracy related to the foreign lobbying campaign. So big swirling of superseding indictments. And I did not see a three-year-old superseding indictment coming. But uh, good on you, Merrick Garland, for picking this probe back up. And you can bet on God and Sonny Jesus that if Broidy hadn't been pardoned by Trump, he'd be indicted here too. 
Can't wait to see what other old investigations find new life under this Department of Justice. My fantasy indictment picks for the week include Matt Gates, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, I think Ellicott might strike a plea deal. That's in the Matt Gates investigation. I think Ingersoll will be indicted or maybe strike a plea agreement. I'll go with indicted. He's he's a Joel Greenberg pal. Um, that's let's see. That's a one, two, three, four. Uh, hmm. A little too early for Trump. Still too early for Rudy, actually, for him to even be on there. Maybe, uh, how about, you know, but let's take Rudy off and, uh, let's put Trump on there and, uh, uh, Ivanka, let's do it. Let's put her on there too. Um, everyone, thank you for listening. As you know, I'll be back for the season finale next Sunday. Then we have one week off of this show before we kick off season two. Until then, you can find me every weekday morning with Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero and a host of experts and special guests at the Daily Beans Pod. Uh, I'm your host, Allison Gill, and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. W Media.